Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we discussed the changing warfare in the Middle Merovingian period, with a special focus on the reasons why it was changing. This week, we're going to take a look at another topic that is key to life in this period, religion. Specifically, we're going to look at the actions of the bishops in this period, discuss the increasing Merovingian intervention in church affairs, and the treatment of Jewish people. As Merovingian rule was becoming more settled, church affairs were getting more chaotic, and we'll see how this affects religious life in episode 34, Love Thy Neighbour. We're going to start this week with a couple of stories about the bishopric of Nantes, because they reveal a lot about the different things going on in the Gallic church. Felix, bishop of Nantes, was ill. So ill, it seems, that everyone believed he was not long for this world. From his sickbed, he summoned the other bishops of the region and begged them to put their names to the accession of his nephew Burgundio to the Bishop of Nantes. They agreed, and Burgundio, at only 25 years of age, travelled to the Metropolitan Bishop, who had authority over Nantes and the other regional bishops, to be tonsured and consecrated. Unfortunately for Burgundio, the Metropolitan Bishop in charge of the region was Gregory. This whole situation stinks of political shenanigans. Felix was still alive, so consecrating another man to be bishop was simply wrong. Plus, this is not how bishops are meant to be appointed. Felix was trying to use the consensus of the episcopal elite to bypass the usual processes and install his nephew as bishop. A novel way, to be sure, but not a particularly legal one. With the backing of all the regional bishops, Burgundio might have had a solid chance, despite his youth and lack of experience. So Felix must have been worried about either the king, the people, or Gregory himself intervening. Gregory, perhaps predictably, refused to make such a blatantly illegal move. He pointed out that to appoint a bishop while his predecessor was still alive was contrary to canon law. He then said to Burgundio, quote, It is set out in the canons, my dear boy, that no one can be consecrated as a bishop until he has first passed through the various ranks of the church in a normal way. You had better go back to Nantes and ask the person who is sponsoring you to give you tonsure. Once you have been found worthy of admission to the priesthood, Apply yourself seriously to all that the church asks of you. When God decides that the moment has come to remove your uncle the bishop to a better world, it may well be that you yourself will be given Episcopal rank. End quote. Now this response is kind of hilarious in its willful blindness of how the bishoprics had changed in this period. First, Plenty of bishops were appointed without first passing through the proper ranks of the church. As this whole business with Felix is revealing, the bishopric had become more and more of a political appointment within the clergy, rather than a clergyman who sometimes dabbled in politics. 
Only a couple of episodes ago, we saw this in the south of Gaul, with the appointment of various former governors into bishoprics. Gregory's response to go through the traditional channels ignores the reality that that is no longer necessarily the best, or even the most reliable way, to secure yourself a bishopric. Second, it seems clear from his response that Gregory doesn't really want Burgundio as the new bishop. Not only is he giving him rather poor advice, but he 100% has the capacity to tonsure Burgundio himself here in Tours, and then send him back to await his uncle's death in the following election. But doing so would be seen as an unofficial endorsement of the young man's candidacy, and Gregory clearly wasn't comfortable with this. But why wasn't he comfortable with this? Well, there are three likely reasons. First, he just might not have thought Burgundio was suitable. This is the most obvious explanation. Gregory was an idealist, and he spends a lot of his histories attacking bishops who he considers to have been unworthy. He might have genuinely just not liked the cut of the young man's jib, and decided that the bishopric would be better off with someone else. Second, he might have known that such a move could provoke another clash with Chilperic. Gregory tells us that when Felix finally died, quote, at the king's command, his cousin Nonacius succeeded him, end quote. Perhaps knowing Chilperic would intervene, Gregory stayed out of the whole situation, despite the fact that the king intervening in one of Gregory's own bishoprics must have been a tough pill for the usually purest bishop to swallow. He had just gotten out of his trial and confrontation with the king, Pushing Chilperic further at this point might have been unwise. Third, and perhaps most interestingly, Gregory might not have liked the situation Felix had put him in. In deciding on a successor and collecting all the regional bishops to support him, Felix was trying to force Gregory's hand, and doing so in a fairly public way. With a bit of a suspicious mind, this quickly comes to look like a conspiracy to undermine Gregory's authority as the Metropolitan Bishop. If his regional bishops can gang up and force him to do things he doesn't want to do, well, a lot of his authority over them will be stripped away. We haven't talked about this too much thus far, but the divide between the Metropolitan and Regional Bishoprics is an interesting one. Given what we've learnt about Gregory and his often precarious position, imagine how dangerous a position a regional bishop is in without all of the authority of a metropolitan see to protect them. Gregory could wield his reputation and authority as a shield. A regional bishop could not, and largely relied upon their metropolitan to protect them. But this does not mean that regional bishops lacked ambition, we've seen plenty of examples of regional bishops engaging in political games. The story of Sagittarius and Salonius from episode 24 underlines just how restless some of these men were becoming, and just how much they resented the control of their metropolitan. In an increasingly unstable political environment, 
where the king was intervening more and more in church matters, and metropolitans were increasingly being challenged. These bids for more autonomy from regional bishops might have been more and more frequent. We are limited by the sources we have, but episodes like this one do hint at a larger pattern. Getting back to Nantes, Felix actually began to recover from his illness. This might have been good news for Gregory, because it discouraged Burgundio from his plans and effectively disbanded Felix's alliance. And it was obviously good news for Felix. But it was bad news for a pair of young lovers. So let's discuss their story and what it reveals about bishops and the moral side to their authority. We've been talking so much about the politics of the realm that bishops were caught up in, that we might have forgotten about their other duties, one of which is to preserve the moral quality of their flock. Upon hearing of Bishop Felix's illness, a man named Papillon came to Nantes. He had previously been engaged to Felix's niece, but had been forced out after the bishop had expressed disapproval at the match. Why did the bishop disapprove? Well, it is not entirely clear. Perhaps he didn't like that his niece was going to marry a Frankish nobleman, which would be an interesting case of ethnic tension. Perhaps he didn't want part of his family's estate to pass out of the family, as his niece would have had a claim to a portion under the law. This was actually a common reason for aristocratic families to put their daughters in nunneries in this period, as it helped to preserve the family lands and wealth. Perhaps he simply thought Paplin had a silly name, a position I find myself somewhat sympathetic to. Whatever the case, the actions of Felix and Paplin reveal how a bishop could try to control a young woman, and how a young man might seek to oppose him. While the bishop was sick, Papillon appeared with, quote, a great number of supporters, end quote. This reveals that it was probably some form of noble or courtier, and demonstrates that he knew a show of force would help intimidate the locals into letting him take the young woman. Without the bishop to stop him, he succeeded, abducting his future bride from the oratory where the bishop had been keeping her locked away. Upon recovering from his illness, Felix was furious, and managed to trick the young woman into leaving Papillon and returning, at which point Felix immediately forced her into a nunnery and made her wear the habits of a religious. Now, at this point the bishop really should have won. If we move past the modern ethical considerations of controlling what this young woman did with both her body and her life, Felix had successfully made her a religious in a nunnery. To remove her would be inappropriate, as it would imply breaking any promise she might have made to God. But, in a clear sign that social taboos like this had yet to become solidified, when Paplin received word that the young woman still wanted to marry him through one of her servants, he organized her escape from the nunnery and married her, despite her family's wishes. Papillon's trump card in this conflict was his royal support. Felix may have wanted to pursue the issue, 
perhaps take Papel into court and seek an annulment. But Gregory makes it clear that the bishop was forced to back off now that the two were married. Without the king's intervention in this case, Paplin likely would have lost in court. He had abducted the young woman from a nunnery against her family's wishes. But with the king's support, Felix must have known that he would lose, which finally made him back off and accept the pairing. Now the king's intervention here is key, as it reveals a lot about the king's increasing role in church matters. We've heard a lot about the kings taking sides in church disputes and even appointing candidates to bishoprics, but their increasing interest in church affairs runs deeper than these political considerations. Morality and the personal lives of their flock had always been the purview of the bishops. This was literally the base level of their job, looking after the immortal souls of their congregation. The fact that Chilperic would intervene not only in one of these cases, but one actually involving a bishop's own family? Very interesting. This once again shows another way the kings, especially Chilperic, were moving away from the laissez-faire attitude towards governing that their predecessors had used, and towards a more active, interventionist policy. This meant more and more intervention in the day-to-day affairs of the state at the local level, which, unfortunately for the bishops, was an area that they had previously dominated largely unopposed. This brings us back to the three-way power struggle we were talking about a couple of episodes ago. Not only were nobles increasingly muscling in on local politics, threatening the bishop's position, but the kings were also taking more and more of an interest as a way to burnish their own authority in the absence of military successes. This made the political game at all levels of the Merovingian state complicated and contested in a way that it simply hadn't been before. And the big losers here are the bishops. The bishops along with the whole Gallo-Roman aristocratic landowner class, had previously wielded almost unchecked authority over large parts of Gaul. As long as they didn't upset the warmongering kings, they could basically do as they pleased throughout the early Merovingian period. The stories we have been discussing over the last few weeks prove that this period is now over. Now, it is time to talk about the adherence of the Jewish faith in the kingdoms. We've talked a little bit about their struggles before, and I want to repeat my caveat that I'm not a Jewish historian, and a full explanation of their situation is beyond my capacity. But I think it is important to highlight their situation again in these discussions of religion and the state, because they occupy a unique place. Religious minorities were not all that uncommon in the Merovingian period. Gregory's rather evangelical perspective skews our perception somewhat, but there is plenty of evidence of other beliefs. For example, we learn that the conversion of all of Gaul to Christianity was not complete until the 700s, at the very end of Merovingian rule and the beginning of Carolingian. 
Most of Gaul had been firmly Christian since Roman times, though ancient sources do often overstate the amount of adherence to the new faith. Christianity was initially popular in the urban areas, only slowly seeping into rural life. In Gregory's time, there were probably few out-and-out pagans in central Gaul, but a lot of rural folk probably continued pagan practices alongside the new religion. Truly pagan areas probably existed though, especially along the Rhine and the fringes of Gaul, where urban areas were more isolated, Merovingian authority was limited, and power was still held by tribal elites. These elites might have converted when Clovis initially was baptised, but their people likely hadn't. The other significant minority was Arians. We've talked about the Arians before, who believed in a different interpretation of the Trinity that had been deemed heretical at the Council of Nicaea centuries before. The splinter faith had persisted though, and the Visigoths were ardent believers. Gregory spends an unusual amount of time attacking the faith for someone who also insists that such beliefs only come from misguided Goths down in Spain. This preoccupation makes more sense when we know that the Goths still controlled a piece of southern Gaul called Septimania, and probably still wielded significant influence over the south, especially in their previously held territories of Toulouse and Aquitaine. Gregory and his fellow Gallic bishops were no doubt worried about a resurgence of what they deemed to be a heretical creed, thus explaining his preoccupation. Jewish believers, however, were a little different than these two groups. Pagans were seen as people who just hadn't been properly converted yet, while Arians were treated as an existential threat to the church. Jewish believers were kind of neither of these things, treated a lot more like misguided children by men like Gregory. But the period, though comparatively tolerant compared to what came before and after, was still rife with anti-Semitism. We're going to read a quick excerpt from Gregory about a bishop he didn't like named Caltinus. See if you can spot the anti-Semitism. Quote, Nothing was sacred to Caltinus, and he respected nothing. He had no time for literature, either sacred or profane. He was on familiar terms with the Jews, and was much influenced by them, not for their conversion, but because he bought goods from them. He was easily flattered, and they knew how to keep in his good books, so sold him things at a higher price than they were worth. End quote. Did you spot it? Of course you did. Gregory is attacking the bishop he hated, but he is using a negative stereotype that Jewish people were overcharging the bishop for their goods. Just kind of a useful two birds one stone attack. Gregory doesn't even think twice about the statement, and much of the appearance of Jewish people in his histories involves a similar intolerant attitude. There were no pogroms, but it's not like Jewish people's rights were respected. When Saint Avitus converts a great number of Jewish people in Clermont-Ferrand, it is treated as an archetype 
for what a Gallic bishop should do with his Jewish citizens. When Gregory gets in a theological argument with a Jewish man, he takes on an insultingly paternalistic tone, speaking to the grown man much as a father would speak to a misguided child. When Chilperic forcibly baptizes the Jewish people of his kingdom, Gregory does not object, despite the harsh and violent methods. And when violence breaks out in the community as a result, that is their fault, not the king's. When Guntram is suspicious, for literally no reason, of the motives of the Jewish people who cheer him as he walks into Orléans, Gregory treats it as completely reasonable. See, I think other minorities made sense to Gregory, but his attitude towards Jewish people reveals a struggle. It is as if he is not really sure why they just don't see the light and convert already, and their reticence to do so doesn't really anger him so much as baffle him. Now, again, a more complete picture would need a more qualified Jewish historian than myself, but to leave out the experiences of the Jewish community would be wrong. They existed, in fairly large numbers, and their struggles were real. To state the obvious, their treatment was better in this period than in the wars of the Roman era and the pogroms of the medieval, but it was very far from good. That wraps up our discussion of religion for this week. The topic, obviously, will keep coming up, but I hope this quick update and a look at the religious state of the kingdoms has been enlightening. Next week, we're going to take a break from Gregory altogether and tackle a big topic that came up just a little in this episode, inheritance. Now, I know 25 minutes of me droning on about inheritance law might not sound gripping, but I promise it will not be as bad as it sounds. Merovingian inheritance is actually quite fascinating, and it has deep and profound consequences for local, national, and international politics, as well as religious life. So I'll see you then.